Father, we thank you for bringing us together today. And we thank you for a season in which we should be mindful and, and remembering of the many things that we have to be thankful for. And so we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the way that it guides us and instructs us for daily living, for the common things, for the things that aren't so common. Lord, teach us to look to your word for wisdom and for authority in terms of how we should live our lives for the glory of Christ. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Genesis chapter 29. We're going to be starting, at least, in Genesis chapter 29, um, talking about marriage today. And marriage is uh, obviously a huge thing. It's a foundational thing that you find throughout the Bible. It's a concept that isn't just mentioned once or twice in passing. No, we receive some very explicit instructions for how to navigate, how to exist within the context of marriage. The foundation of a building is unquestionably the most important aspect of the building, and few people would, uh, would disagree with that. If the foundation isn't laid properly or correctly or with something that will not erode, uh, you can build the most beautiful building in the world on top of it, but eventually gravity is going to take over and it's not going to withstand the test of time. The Leaning Tower of Pisa, for example, you might know it wasn't built to be leaning, but in a sense it was because it doesn't have a very good foundation. In fact, the foundation is only 10 feet deep. Uh, hence, when, uh, when the, the, the earth moves just a little bit, the tower leans, and that's why it is the way it is today. It's just a matter of time before gravity takes over and a building that isn't on a good foundation starts to move. And while it's entirely true to say that God Himself is sovereign and is the foundation upon which everything rests, including human civilization, it's also true to say that He has decreed, that He has ordained that there be certain foundations, that there be certain pillars, if you will, upon which society is designed to thrive. The three pillars or, or the three foundations set in place by God are, first and foremost, the church, but also the state, that is the governing authorities. God is sovereign over who is in charge, who is in the governing authorities. And the third one is the family. Like a three-legged stool. If you imagine a, a three-legged stool, an attack at just one of these three foundations, these three God-ordained pillars, is an attack on the whole structure. We saw back in Genesis chapter 1 that the family was to be foundational to a healthy and thriving society. The family. God gave Adam and Eve the instruction to be fruitful, and multiply. And we saw that the context within which that was supposed to happen was marriage. And we saw that marriage is biblically defined as a lifelong monogamous covenant between one biological male and one biological female. That's the definition, biblically. So with that in mind, we have to understand that if the enemy of God, if, if Satan wants to launch an attack 
against God's plans, against the society that God has designed, the family is one of the primary targets because a weak foundation at the family level will cause the structure of society to crumble. Well, the sexual revolution of the 20th century was the beginning of a a full-scale assault on the Western family. We've had one nuclear bomb after another lobbed at the family. Extreme feminism, the proliferation of birth control, the increased ease with which a couple can get a divorce, the legalization of abortion, the proliferation of pornography, the normalization of homosexuality, the redefinition of marriage. The list just goes on and on and on and on. And these are all an assault on the family structure. And all of these things together, combined, each one has been disastrous, but together it's just had disastrous consequences on the family as a foundation for human civilization. Now as we continue in our study of the book of Genesis today, we have to remember that the passages leading up to today set the context for, for where we are. And in the passages that, that led up to this point, we saw that Jacob had swindled his father and and, and swindled his brother too. He cheated his brother too. Uh, And he was forced to run for his life. He was forced to run away from home. And so at his mother's advice, he got out in the wilderness. He he, he went out to, uh, to find his uncle Laban, where he fell in love with Rachel. But along the way, between point A and point B, he had a conversion experience. He, he had this dream of, of what we call Jacob's Ladder. And it was a conversion experience. It was something that completely changed his life, changed his attitude about life. But then we saw immediately after God makes these promises to him, immediately after that, Jacob's life falls apart. His life gets very, very, very complicated. And his uncle, um, gives him a dose of his own medicine. He shows him what it's like to be swindled. Uh, And he uses his oldest daughter, Leah. Leah participates in this scheme uh, where Leah marries Jacob instead of Rachel marrying Jacob. So Jacob, the cheater, Jacob, the swindler, got swindled. The, The player got played, as we might say today. And it cost him, at the beginning anyway, seven years of slavery to Laban. But Leah wasn't the woman who made Jacob's heart pitter-patter. She's not the one who gave him butterflies every time he looked at her. So so Jacob ended up as as a slave to Laban for seven more years because Rachel was the woman who made his heart pitter-patter. And so he is going to earn both of their hands in marriage. And this is where we left off. And this is uh, what the context has led us to today. Jacob having two wives and living as a slave to his uncle Laban. And before we begin, we must understand that God's design for marriage has been clear from the beginning. And I want to give you the definition again, because this is something that we need to know, we need to understand, we need to, to hold on to. Marriage is a lifelong monogamous, that's important for this story, a lifelong monogamous covenant between one biological male and one biological female. Any deviation from that, any alteration of that, any modification of that defies God's design and God's intent 
for marriage and the family. And so with that said, who has the right to redefine marriage? If God is the one who defined it, who has the right to redefine it? Nobody. So our passage today is going to be found in Genesis chapter 29. We're going to be looking at verse 31 to chapter 30, verse 24. And the central point of our passage today is that violating or deviating from the biblical design and purpose for the family is not only sinful, but it is an invitation for strife, it is an invitation for conflict, and it is an invitation for problems at the foundational level, not just of your own home, but of society. So let's start by looking at verses 31 to 35 of chapter 29. We read, When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son, and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also, and she, named, and she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. Now if you have a computer or if you read the newspaper, or if you have a television and you watch the news, you might realize that polygamy is one of the things that is on the rise in our nation. It's becoming more and more acceptable. A hundred years ago, uh, you, were, you were kind of outcast if you thought that that was even acceptable. But today, we have TV shows in which polygamy is being promoted, and it won't be long, I am sure, before polygamy becomes normalized in our culture. And it shouldn't surprise us too much that there would be some people out there who would twist the words of Scripture in order to accommodate the idea of polygamy, in order to justify it and suit their desires. You know, a, a few years ago, I was watching, I don't even remember what show it was, but I was watching some TV show in which someone was doing that, just that. They were uh, making the argument that the Bible um, approves of polygamy and his argument was that all these guys in the bible you know uh jacob included uh esau of course but also david solomon all these men had multiple wives and so his conclusion was therefore god must be okay with polygamy and i think i i would hope that it just goes without saying that this is an absolutely horrible hermeneutic. It's an absolutely horrible interpretation, uh, process of interpretation. The fallacy here is that it confuses what is descriptive, saying, saying this is what happened and describing what happened with what is prescriptive. Prescriptive being do this or do that or don't do this and don't do that. So it's true that there were quite a few men in Scripture who had multiple wives. Solomon is probably the prime example. Yeah, Jacob has two of them. Let's not forget his brother had three of them. Esau had three of them. But the fact that these men are described as having multiple wives doesn't mean that it's prescriptive or prescribed for them or, or for anybody else. In fact, what we see is that this attempt to redefine marriage 
always has catastrophic consequences. And Jacob's life is going to be no exception to that principle. Now you might say, well, you know, Jacob was really kind of conned. You know, he, he, he was duped into this. It's not exactly his fault that he has two wives. And I'd say, well, yes and no. Yes, uh, he, he did marry them. No, he didn't intend to marry Leah. But once he did, he was married to her. The covenant was made. And yet, in the context of that covenant, the covenant of marriage that he had to Leah, he had eyes for another woman. And that's sin. And, and I get it. it. It seems so unfair. It seems like you know, he was cheated. He shouldn't have to have less than what his heart desires. We should be free to just follow our hearts. Oh, that's, that's getting into some dangerous waters. You know, we, we love a good romance. We, we, we get it. You know, the, the story of a guy who's in a marriage in which not only does he not love his wife as he should, but he, he's, he's not even attracted to her. In fact, he's attracted to her sister and, and, he, and he pursues her. You might find that excusable. You might find that justifiable because it pulls at our emotions and it, and it tugs at our, at our heartstrings. But it just illustrates how thoroughly deceptive how thoroughly corrupt the heart is who can know it so we have to accept the fact that it was sinful for Jacob to take a second wife no matter how justifiable it might seem but here's the good part Jacob is is deviating from God's design for marriage and his wives are deviating from God's design for marriage Nevertheless, God is still sovereign. They deviate from God's design for marriage, but God uses Jacob's sin to accomplish His eternal purposes. What we're going to see here is the the tribes of Israel, the, the, the founders of the tribes of Israel being born. What man intends for evil, God is completely able to use for good. So this passage starts off in a really kind of dark place. The Lord sees that Jacob hates Leah, but loves Rachel. And so the text tells us that the Lord opens Rachel's womb. Now we need to understand first and foremost that the word hate here doesn't mean hate as we would uh, normally use it in our culture. Like, you know, we, we hate the idea of eating asparagus for dinner or something like that. You know, it, it's, it's not used that way. In the Bible, the most, uh, the most common use of the word simply is, you know, to, to love something less. Uh, to love less than something or, or someone else. For example, when Jesus said that a disciple couldn't follow him unless they hate their mother, father, and even themselves, he wasn't saying that he wanted his disciples to be suicidal or for them to be you know, chronically depressed or anything like that. No, what he was saying is that following him requires loving him far beyond, far above and beyond anyone or anything else, even the people we're likely to love the most, which at the top of that list would be ourselves. We have to love him more than we love ourselves. So he says, you can't follow me unless you hate yourself. So that's what he's saying. You have to love him more than you love yourself. And really, this is all made very clear for us in the text. If you consider what verse 30 says, take a look at verse 30. It says, so Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah. Okay, then the next verse, 
she's hated. Well, there you go. The previous passage actually gives us clarity on what the text means. Let's remember that God had promised to protect Jacob. He had promised that Jacob would would prosper in accordance with God's plans and, and purposes. And if God's purposes and God's intentions are to go forth, nothing can stand in their way. Nothing can get in the way of His plans and purposes. Not sin, not even polygamy. So we're told that it was God Himself who opens Leah's womb, allowing her to bear children. And that it was also God Himself who closed Rachel's womb, preventing her from bearing children. Now in ancient Mesopotamian culture, this wasn't just inconvenient. This wasn't even something that would have just been kind of frustrating or even super frustrating. No, the inability to bear children in this culture was a condition that was to be absolutely despised, like in in the, the way that we would use the word hated in our culture today. Because they viewed it, the culture viewed it, as a sign of being cursed. As far as the culture was concerned, a woman who couldn't bear children was cursed. So, as the wife who was loved less bears children, her hopes of being loved, her hopes of being valued, increase. So, as, as she has her first child, she names him Reuben, which means, see, a son. And the, re- the reason this name is, is chosen is spelled out in verse 32, where she says, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, now my husband will love me. Why will her husband love her? Because she's had a son. So we see here that we have two women, Rachel and Leah, who have very different, what we would call, felt needs. One feels the need to be loved, and she bears children. The other feels the need to have children, and she is loved. So it seems pretty clear that Leah thinks that God is on her side here, that that God is trying to force Jacob's hand, force him to love her. And so she attributes the birth of the child to the Lord and feels that it was God's way of making Jacob fall in love with her. But he doesn't. How do we know? Because we look at the name of the next child. She hasn't, she hasn't given up trying to earn his love after him. We see that she and Jacob conceive of a second child. And she names her second son, Simeon, which sounds similar to the Hebrew word for heard. And she says this, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated. So even after Reuben, she's still loved less. She says, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And it still doesn't work. He still doesn't love her. He still loves her less than he loves Rachel. And so she conceives of and bears a third child whom she names Levi, which sounds like the Hebrew word for attached because she thinks that, she says, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Notice something. This is significant. She's kind of given up on trying to earn his love. She's kind of given up on the idea of him ever loving her the way that he should. And so now, her hope shifts down. Her hope goes from, from being loved to being attached. Now I'm, now I'm going to be attached. Now, now my husband will be attached to me with this third son. Listen, you can't buy love. Somebody should write a song about that, really. <laughs> you can't earn love, but you can't buy it, you can't earn it. It's, it's got to be given freely. 
But the pathetic desperation of Leah, we must understand, is caused by, and it's also outweighed by, Jacob's utter sinfulness. His utter failure to love his wife as he should have. See, love is not just an emotion. Love's a choice. And if we fail to understand that love is a decision, that love is a, a, an intentional choice, and not just an emotion, sometimes there isn't emotion. Sometimes there are negative emotions. And if we don't understand that love, first and foremost, is a choice, we're setting ourselves up for failure in love also. Now the Bible clearly teaches it's in, it's in black and white, crystal clear language. The Bible clearly teaches that husbands are to love their wives as how? As Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. That's Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Colossians 3.19 says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Oh, that one's hard, isn't it? That, that, one, that one gets me sometimes, I, I confess. And Jacob is the same way. He was harsh with Leah. He wounded her. He sinned against her. And he sinned against God by failing to love her as he should. Now it's clear that Leah desperately, desperately wanted to be loved above anything and everything else. She wanted to be loved. And when Jacob failed to love her, she tried to earn it. Let's be very clear about something. A wife, a wife should never, ever have to strive to earn her husband's love any more than the church should strive to earn Christ's love. And if we were to confront Jacob on this, I imagine his response would be something along the lines of, well, I was duped into this marriage. And besides, she, she's not as drop-dead gorgeous as her sister Rachel. And what I'd say to that is, well, aren't you glad that Christ's love for the church isn't conditional upon the church's loveliness? I know I am. So you can't buy love. You can't earn love. And Leah's trying really, really, really hard to earn her husband's love. But she's just spinning her wheels. She's, she's flooring it, putting forth every effort and going absolutely nowhere. And then she conceives of a fourth child and, and she says something very different when her fourth child is born. She names her fourth son Judah, which sounds like the Hebrew word for praise. Simply saying, this time I will praise the Lord. She's given up on her husband. She, she, she's got no hope. She, she, there's no hope that she feels anymore for being loved and valued as she should be by Jacob. But at least, at least God had been good to her. She had four strong, four healthy sons. And she was thankful for that. She probably had no idea how thankful she should have been or how blessed she truly was Judah would be the kingly line through which the promised Messiah would come, and Levi would father the priestly line of Israel. But she'd given up on seeking love, on seeking validation from Jacob, and so she decided to simply praise God for His goodness. And I would say, 
There's nothing wrong with that. Praise God for His goodness. That's always a wise move. You can't go wrong with that. Now before we move on, let me make sure that we get the point here. Let me make sure that we understand the point of, of all of this. If all of Scripture is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, then what purpose, in that sense, do these verses serve to us? They show us the consequences of Jacob deviating from God's design for marriage. And they show us that deviating from God's design produces real hurt in real people. You may know that Australia just recently voted to redefine marriage. And you undoubtedly know that the United States Supreme Court did the same thing a couple years ago. Did any of them have the authority to redefine the institution, the parameters of marriage? Absolutely not. So will this be without consequences? I mean, it's an assault on one of the foundations of society that God put in place from the beginning. Friends, we, we live in, in wicked, wicked times, and, and I don't think that we're done seeing the progression of this movement away from traditional marriage. But we have to see two things in light of this passage. Number one, we must see that there is nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new. This has happened before. People have deviated since a long, 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 long time ago from God's design for marriage. And number two, the second thing that we have to see is that God's purposes are still going forward. Nevertheless, there will be consequences for deviating from his design. There will be consequences for Jacob because he doesn't just have one unhappy and unfulfilled wife. He has two unhappy, unfulfilled wives. And if there's anything worse than having an unhappy, unfulfilled wife, I would think the only thing is having more than one. And Jacob has more than one. <laughs> so let's continue looking at verses 1-13 to 13 of chapter 30. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, "'Give me children, or I shall die.' Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, Here's my servant Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, and even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, With mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, Good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. Now, as, as you read this, 
Does it remind anybody else of like a, a ping pong match or something like that with the ball just like bouncing back and forth, back and forth, back and forth? Over and over again, it's like a NASCAR race where you've got, you know, the, the nose of one car right in front of another and the other one pulls up and it's just back and forth. Leah's fertility and Rachel's barrenness was creating a really ugly scenario, really bad situation. With each of Leah's first four children being born, Rachel becomes just increasingly envious with each one until it finally erupts. It finally reaches a boiling point and she blows up at Jacob finally as if it's somehow his fault that she's been unable to bear children. Now Jacob hasn't been doing a lot of things right here. He hasn't been getting a lot of things right, but at this point, the one thing he does get right is that it is God who has withheld children from Rachel's womb. But her envy, her frustration, her, her anger doesn't stir compassion in Jacob's heart. It stirs anger. He's angry toward Rachel. In that culture, we have to understand, he's acting just like the world. He's acting just like the culture, right? Because in that culture, it was humiliating and it was degrading for a woman to not bear children. And so he, instead of being compassionate toward her, as he should have been, he's angry. Rachel's got the looks. She's got Jacob's heart. But Leah's the one who has the kids. Rachel's envy and her bitterness had clouded her judgment and it caused her to forget that it is God who is sovereign over both life and death. He alone is the giver of life. But truth be told, that's what bitterness does. That's what envy causes us to do. It, It so easily causes us to focus on ourselves, on what we want, on what we need, on what we deserve, on what we should have rather than focusing on the fact that God is sovereign over it all. I know that as, as I look at my life and as, as you look at your life, you know, we see this is what's going on within us in times of discontentedness. And we think that getting what we want is going to fix all of our problems and just make it all go away, but it doesn't. And here's why. Because it'll feel like it's fixed for a while, but our hearts will get fixed on something else. Our hearts will desire something else that we don't have. And we'll go right back into the routine. So with clouded judgment, and with no regard for God, no regard for God's design for marriage, Rachel continues to make sinful choices. She makes really what we'd call an indecent proposal, telling Jacob to lay with and conceive children with her servant, Bilhah. So add Bilhah to the list of people who are getting completely and deeply wounded in this chapter, who are getting wounded by this this deviance from God's design for marriage. Because it's not like you can separate love from sexual intimacy. Right? That's, that's one of the reasons that sex is to be experienced only within the con- confines of the context of marriage. Because you can't just separate the emotion from it. But Rachel sees Bilhah as a means to an end. Not as a human being who has real emotions. 
She sees her as a commodity. So she uses her to even the score with her fertile sister. Deviating from God's design for marriage has consequences. It hurts people. It really hurts people. It's like leaving the front door open while you leave town. You can't do that and expect everything to still be there and just fine when you get back. Nevertheless, that's, that's the plan that Rachel proposes. And Jacob seems more than happy to go along with it. Even though he surely knew about what his grandfather Abraham had done when Sarah's womb was barren, and she proposed that he take her servant and conceive with her. So let's think about this for a second. Rachel would rather have another woman sleep with her husband than have her sister bear more children than she does. Does everybody see the stupidity of that? I I couldn't come up with a better word than that. It's just stupid. It's foolish. And, and, And how do you think that Leah, Jacob's other wife, feels about this, feels about him sleeping with another woman on on an emotional level. How do you think she felt about it? Not on a competitive level, just an emotional level. See, people are getting deeply wounded left and right in this chapter. But that's the fruit of discontentedness, and that's what happens when you deviate from God's designs. The plan nevertheless works. Bilhah concedes not just once, but twice, and she bears two sons for Jacob in Rachel's place. First, Rachel names Dan, which sounds kind of like the Hebrew word for judged or vindicated. And she says, God has judged me or, or vindicated me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. With the second son, Rachel declares, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she names him Naphtali, which sounds like the Hebrew word for wrestling. Rachel feels like she's been vindicated. She's vindicated herself. God has vindicated her. And so she, she, in the name of her son, it, it reflects the fact that she's boasting about prevailing over Leah, whose womb is no longer fertile. Never mind the fact that Rachel's kind of cheating here if this is a race, if this is a competition. So, so how does Leah respond to all this? Her, her womb is barren now, remember. So she says, fine, two can play at the, that game. And she gives Jacob her servant, Zilpah, uh, as, as a wife to lay down with. So add another name to the list of people who are being deeply wounded, deeply hurt, used and abused in this chapter. And Zilpah gives Jacob two more sons, Gad, which sounds like good fortune, and Asher, which sounds like the Hebrew word for happy. Almost as if to say, ha ha, Rachel, I'm winning now, six to two, and I couldn't be happier about it, so what you gonna do? It sounds like a completely ridiculous story, but really it's, it's not that far removed from some of the junk that we see on TV and in movies, and it's really not that far removed from our own lives if we think about it. Because everybody in this chapter, every single one of them, is leaning on their own understanding rather than trusting in the Lord. And everybody in this chapter is thinking only about themselves. Everyone in this chapter is willing to hurt others for the sake of getting what they want and feeling important or or validated or vindicated 
And we do the same thing, don't we? It may not look the same in your life. I, I hope it doesn't look the same in your life as it does in this chapter, but we sin. We, we act out based on what we want. Maybe it means getting rude or aggressive with somebody because you weren't getting exactly what you wanted. We don't have the right to do that. But I do that sometimes. And I hate when I do that, especially in traffic. Oh, I, I get so frustrated in traffic. But I shouldn't. I shouldn't. I, I don't have the right to treat somebody like less than. I don't have the right to harbor anger in my heart because they're actually going the speed limit and I want to go faster. So Paul told the Ephesians in chapter 4, uh, verses 1 and 2 of the book of Ephesians, he says, Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience. When was the last time you failed to do that? You know what gets me is when Christians actually act worse toward one another than the world acts to each other or to us. And it happens a lot. I've got a friend from seminary who's applying to be a pastor someplace. And he's been applying for two or three years now. And he's beyond frustrated because the way that he gets treated as an applicant is worse than he would be treated if he were to go and apply at McDonald's or Walmart. I'm thankful that this church didn't do that to me when I came here. But that's the reality out there. Paul goes on to say, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. There's one final thing that he said in Ephesians 4 that I want to point out. In verse 31, he says this. He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Get these things out of your life, in other words. Why should we do that? Well, first and foremost, because God has instructed us to, and He doesn't need to give us a reason, even in a practical sense. He's God. He tells us to. We don't have any choice in the matter. But secondly, because, on a more practical level, when you're driven by these emotions, bitterness, wrath, anger, when you're driven by these things, you will make sinful choices. They will prevent you from thinking about God. And they will force you to focus only on yourself and getting what you want, getting what you think that you deserve, getting what you think you might have earned. So, we must put these things away from us and stop focusing on ourselves, but focus on the Lord. Rachel and Leah are both focused on themselves. And, and Jacob, I, I, he's not off the hook either. No, he's been completely complicit. He's gone along with everybody's plans. He's not even thinking about walking in obedience to the Lord. And he's certainly not loving anybody, not even Rachel. He's not loving anyone in this story except himself. See, marriage is supposed to be a picture of the gospel. But neither of his marriages are an accurate picture of the gospel at this point. They are, in fact, the complete opposite. They are a picture of complete self-absorption, complete selfishness. 
you remember what Isaac did when Rebekah's womb was barren a few chapters ago? He prayed for her. He interceded. He, he went before God on Rebekah's behalf with the disappointment that she felt for having a barren womb. And he prayed for her. And there's no indication that Jacob ever did that. And you would think that that would be the easiest thing he could do. And that would be the, the least, the very least that he could do. But he doesn't do it. He's completely self-absorbed. He doesn't even try to intervene in the hostility that's been building now for, for years, obviously, between his two wives, between these two sisters. Now, it looks like Leah's getting the best of Rachel in this, at this point, but Rachel isn't giving up just yet. Let's look at verses 14 to 24. In the days of wheat harvest... Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you, also, would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, Then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. Then Jacob came from the field in the evening. Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And, Jacob and Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. So one day, Reuben, who is the oldest son, the firstborn of Leah, he's out during the wheat harvest and he brings back some mandrakes. Now, in our culture, I get it, we have probably never heard of mandrakes. It's basically a plant uh, that people have all these superstitions about. Uh, snake oil, like we would say in our day and age. One commentator says this about it. It says, uh, the, quote, the mandrake is a perennial Mediterranean plant that bears bluish flowers in winter and yellowish plum-sized fruit in summer. In ancient times, mandrakes were famed for arousing sexual desire and for helping barren women to conceive, end quote. So it's supposed to be kind of an aphrodisiac or something that helps a woman get pregnant. But just to be clear, there's no scientific evidence whatsoever uh, to, to, to back up the claim that they help women do either. But that hasn't stopped people from having superstitions about it. So Rachel thinks that they'll work, that they'll help her. So she pleads with Leah to give them to her. And Leah's response is basically, isn't it enough that you took my husband? Do you also have to take my aphrodisiac of choice too? And so Rachel proposes a trade. Leah gets to lay with Jacob in exchange for the mandrakes. So apparently... I don't know exactly how this works, but apparently Rachel is the one who gets to determine who gets to sleep with Jacob on any given night. 
So the exchange is made. The, the deal goes through, and Leah ends up conceiving once again. And she has a son. She names him Issachar, which sounds like the Hebrew word for wages, saying, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. And not, off, not long after that, she bears a sixth son, whom she names Zebulun, which sounds like the Hebrew word for honor. And she says, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. Still sad. She's still trying to earn it. And she bears Jacob a sixth, or a, a daughter. And she names the daughter Dina or Dinah. The text tells us that God then remembers Rachel. Now we have to remember that the word remember is kind of a figure of speech when it's applied to God because God is all-knowing and it's not like he forgets anything. So it's not like he had actually forgotten about her like, oh yeah, Rachel. That's not how it works with God. God knows her, God remembers her, and he acts upon her. That's, that's, what, that's the word that, use, that we use to describe him, him acting in her, uh, in her favor, doing something toward her. So God remembers her and she bears another son whom she names Joseph, which means may he add in Hebrew. And she says, may the Lord add to me another son. Man, let's be honest and just admit that this entire chapter is kind of disturbing. I mean, honestly, it's, it's a little bit revolting. Everybody in this chapter is just going with the flow, going with what the world would do, doing, doing what we would expect the world to do. Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. Nobody, nobody in this chapter is living in a way that honors or glorifies the Lord. So I, I, I hope you see this passage for what it is. It's an ugly chapter. It's, it's, honestly, it's kind of risque. It's scandalous. It's disturbing. But we have to see that it all starts out, that it all flows out of this deviation from God's design for how marriage is supposed to look. Husbands, Love your wives, even, or, or maybe even especially in times when you don't feel like it. It's not just about your emotions, guys. It's about your choices. Love her, even when you don't feel like it. Even when she may have done something to earn your scorn. Love her. Love her, because you're a picture of Christ, in a sense. And wives... Wives, find your worth. Find your, your value in God's eyes. Rather than by doing what society or the culture or even your husband would expect from you if it deviates from God's design. We all, whether, whether you're a husband or a wife, whether you're married or, or single, we all must focus on living a life that glorifies Christ. And that involves being selfless, not selfish. Focus on living a life that glorifies Christ rather than living a life that measures up to society's worldly expectations. If you're married, my plea for you is that your marriage would be a picture of the Gospel. 
We, as God's people, we of all people, must not deviate from God's design for marriage and the family. We must hold the line. And I urge you, if you're married, I urge you to see your marriage as a central aspect of your sanctification that God has ordained. God's purpose for you is that you would grow in Christ's likeness. And there's no part of your life that that doesn't apply to. And the, the home life is where everything is supposed to flow out of. And if you don't have it right there, you're not going to have it right anywhere else. Your home life has to be right. Your home life should be a picture of the gospel. And so I urge you to see your home life, see your marriage, or if you're single, your future marriage, as central and vital to your sanctification, to your growth in Christ's likeness. In fact, here's a, here's a good uh, discussion for lunch. If you go out to, to lunch with your wife today or tonight or whenever, talk about it. Talk about that. Ask, talk, talk with your wife about how your marriage has sanctified you. And ask your spouse how she or he thinks you've sanctified them. You've added to their sanctification. Marriage is supposed to be sanctifying. Only God, in His unfathomable wisdom, would get this idea that putting two sinners under one roof would make them both more holy. But that is one of God's purposes in marriage. The conclusion that God wants to bring us to here is that He's sovereign. He's sovereign over all. And, and the principles that He gives us in His Word are for our good. Yes, they are difficult to follow sometimes. No, you will not obey them perfectly. You'll sin. But the principles are for our good. And so we must strive. God is the one who determines the design and the purpose for things, including, and perhaps especially for, something as sacred as marriage. And to deviate from His design is to invite destruction. God doesn't need us to take matters into our own hands if that means making sinful choices. It's kind of one of those situations. Trust in God, trust that He's sovereign, but buckle your seatbelt. He doesn't need us to, to take matters into our own hands if that includes sinning. Nevertheless, our sinful choices won't prevent God's purposes from being fulfilled. And sometimes, God will even use our sinful choices to accomplish His purposes. Think of the crucifixion of Christ. It was man's sinful choice, but at the same time, God had also decreed it from eternity. He had ordained it for the sake of accomplishing His purpose in redeeming His people for Himself. So no, our sinful choices don't stand in the way of God's purposes being fulfilled, but abiding by the principles that He gives us, abiding in obedience to Him, makes our lives and the lives of those around us a lot less turbulent, a lot less painful, ultimately. 
when we yield our will to Him and do things as God would have us. Family strife happens. If you're married long enough, you're not even going to be able to count how many times there's been strife by the time you're done, probably. It happens. But growing in selflessness and being obedient to Christ and being willing to be quick to forgive as Christ forgives us produces peace and brings healing. It's important. It's important not to deviate from God's design. God's design for us as the church is to abide in obedience to Him and to preach the good news. The good news of the gospel. And of course, the good news is that when we repent of our ways, when we turn to Christ in faith and confess our sin, God, who is faithful and just, forgives us and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. That doesn't necessarily mean that there won't be consequences that you'll have to deal with anyway. There may be. But God has lavished on us in Christ His grace. And His grace is beyond sufficient to strengthen us and to guide us and to grow us in the likeness of Christ until we behold Him in glory. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for Your Word. And we thank You for the way that Your Word teaches us, corrects us, sometimes rebukes us, sometimes it it hurts us when we are convicted by what Your Word tells us about ourselves and the way that we've fallen short. But we thank You, Lord, that You have lavished Your grace upon us not because we could ever possibly deserve it, but because you love us and you've given us the purpose of living for you on this side of glory. So Father, strengthen us and encourage us for the journey, starting with our home lives, whether we're married or single. May our home lives flow into a healthy, Christ-glorifying way of living for the world to see and for the glory of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer 
to Jesus. Take me deeper.